It's Luke's gospel. It's chapter 10. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 25 and read to verse 37. Again, hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance... A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to this to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. I'd like to introduce to you our guest uh, speaker this morning. Uh, He's a pastor and a friend uh, from St. Louis. He is the associate pastor at Grace and Peace Fellowship Church in St. Louis. Uh, uh, Next year, he will be uh, planting a daughter church of New City uh, church in St. Louis. But when I first met uh, Thurman Williams, Thurman uh, was the pastor of New Song Church up in Sandtown in Baltimore. And the very first time I saw him, he was preaching. And I thought, whoa, wouldn't it be great to have him at EP? And so if you would, uh, please give uh, Thurman Williams an EP welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, this is really, it's really a privilege to be with you. And actually, this is sort of a homecoming. I actually graduated from Broadneck High School. Amen. I, I was a little concerned about mentioning that. I didn't know if it would turn you against me or not. Um, but it's so wonderful to be with you all again. Thank you so much for the invitation. Once again, our text is Luke 10, 25 to 37. And the theme that I'm calling the message today is walking in line with the truth of the gospel for such a time as this. Walking in line with the truth of the gospel for such a time as this. Let's pray together. Father, your word testifies about itself that it's God-breathed and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. 
So Lord, we pray that by your grace and the power of your spirit, you might work in us towards those ends in our time together this morning. Lord, we confess that we don't even have the ability to understand what we read unless your spirit illumine our understanding. And Lord, we certainly don't have the power to live it out unless you fill us with your spirit and empower us to do so. And that's what we're asking. We don't only want to be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. So teach us, move us, and use us in light of what you do this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Now our title, you might be thinking, this is the longest sermon title I've ever heard in my life. And maybe that's true. And I couldn't think of what to leave out. It's actually pulling together two themes, two ideas, two confrontations, two challenges, if you will, in the Scriptures. One from the New Testament and one from the Old. The first idea of walking in line with the truth of the Gospel comes from Galatians chapter 2. And if you remember there, the Apostle Paul is relating a confrontation he had with the Apostle Peter. And what had happened is Peter had gone to a place and, and was eating with Gentiles. But when some of his friends came from the church in Jerusalem, some other Jewish brothers, Peter withdrew from the Gentiles because he was afraid of what his Jewish brothers would think of him for eating and associating with those people. Even though he had been a part of bringing the gospel to them before. But now he withdraws from them. And not only that, because he's a leader. The people with Peter followed him in that withdrawal. And so Paul confronted him. But it's so instructive in the way that Paul confronts him. Because Paul didn't come to Peter and say, Peter, you know what you are. You're a racist. Or you're a classist. Or you're a bigot. He didn't say anything like that. What he said was, Peter, you're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. And what's the truth of the gospel? The truth of the gospel is we're not saved by race, but by grace. We're not saved by our ability to do good works. We're saved by faith, by grace in Jesus Christ. And whenever we have an ism, whether it's racism or classism or sexism, whatever ism, those things are not only sins, but you know what they are? They are betrayals of the gospel. They're betrayals of the heart and truth of the gospel. And so Paul confronted him. Now the second part of the title, for such a time as this, you remember that from the Old Testament, that comes from the book of Esther. When Mordecai comes to plead with Esther to intercede, on behalf of the Jewish people after there's an edict passed for their annihilation. And Esther is hesitant because she realizes that to do so would be to take her, her, her life into her own hands. And Mordecai challenged her. He says, don't think that you're going to escape even if we get destroyed. But he says, who knows that maybe God has put you in this position right now for such a time as this. To do His work of deliverance in this place. And so combining those things today as we look and think about our own world, when we look in matters of race and justice, it's easy to see in our world that our world does not walk in line with the truth of the gospel. And oftentimes we have to confess that even in the life of the church, as we look and see ourselves, we see we don't walk in line with the truth of the gospel at times. If we look at our very own lives sometimes, we can see that there's times when we're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel either. 
Maybe it's because of fear like Peter. Or maybe it's because we're stuck in our old ways. Maybe like the, the people that Peter was afraid of. But the good news of the gospel. Also you find there in Galatians chapter 2 at the end of that chapter. Where Paul talks about his identity but also ours in Jesus Christ. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life that I live now in the body, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and who gave Himself for me. And in Jesus Christ, that's our testimony too. And could it be that maybe right here in Annapolis or in St. Louis where I'm from or in Baltimore or everywhere else, maybe God has us in this place at this time with all that's going on around us for such a time as this to use us for the glory of the gospel. To walk in line with the truth of the gospel. Well, how does this passage help us? How does this passage guide us? There's three questions, and those are in the the outline in your bulletin as well. But there are three questions that this passage calls us to. To ask, to examine ourselves, and to act on. First, where are we seeking our justification? Where are we seeking our own justification? Let's pick up in verse 25 again. It says, behold, a lawyer, and when it says a lawyer there, it's talking about an expert in biblical law, an expert in the Torah. He stands up to put him to the test. And it's describing the same kind of activity as in Luke chapter 4, when Satan comes before Jesus to tempt him in the wilderness. That's the same spirit that this lawyer is coming to Jesus with here in this passage. And how does he try to test him? He says, teacher, what shall I do? To inherit eternal life. And what is he trying to do with Jesus? He's trying to get him to, sh- to demonstrate that he really doesn't care about the law of God. Because he hears that Jesus is his great teacher. But when he sees Jesus, he's always hanging out with people that he shouldn't be if he's su- such a holy man. And so he's trying to expose Jesus. And say, oh, he really doesn't care about the word of God like he says he does. And so how does Jesus respond? Verse 26, he said to him, what's written in the law? He turns the question back on him. How do you read it? And verse 27, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Quoting directly Deuteronomy chapter 6, what we call the Shema, a prayer that they would recite two times a day. And then he says, quoting from Leviticus 19, and your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus affirms this. He says, you've answered correctly. These are the same things that Jesus would refer to when people would ask him, what's the greatest commandment? He would refer to these two things. You're to love God with every ounce of your being. And also you're to love those made in the image of God with the same intensity that you love yourself. But the man isn't satisfied with that answer. And so it says here in verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself. What does that mean? What does it mean to be justified? In a biblical sense, it means to be declared righteous in the sight of the one whose opinion matters the most, the ultimate judge, almighty God. And how is he trying to justify himself here? The question he says, and who is my neighbor? Now, what is he asking? 
Essentially, he's saying, Jesus, who do I really have to love? He's trying to bring in a category of non-neighbor. What he wants to do is say, I'm following the word of God, but I'm still not treating these people with love that I don't want to love. And he wants to be able to say, I'm still following God's word, but yet not really doing it. He's trying to get God's word to conform to his behavior rather than have his behavior be conformed to the word of God. Now, why? Because what it reveals about him is that he's seeking his justification in the wrong place. In his mind, he's justified by following the rules. And so when he's in a situation that reveals he's not doing it, he tries to change the rules around so that he can live up to them. Whereas, if he's seeking his justification in the right place, that leaves him to be free to face wherever he's falling short of it so he can bring it before the Savior. Where do we find our justification? Many of you know that shorter catechism answer that's so wonderful. What is justification? It's a work of God's grace where he pardons our sin and counts us as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. So we're clothed with it. And it's received by faith alone, only by faith in Jesus. And when we find our justification in the right place, it frees us to be able to face wherever we're falling short and bring it to our Savior to make it right. But because he's seeking it in the wrong place, he won't do that. So what about us? Where are we seeking our own justification? And you say, how do I know that? Well, I'll tell you how I find out oftentimes, I think, where am I most defensive? Or where am I quickest to feel ashamed? Now, I know you probably don't struggle with this here in Annapolis, but in St. Louis, when, uh, when we start to talk about issues of race in Christian context, that seems to be the thing that people are most sensitive about or defensive about. You can call a person prideful or greedy or lustful or any of those things, and they'd say, yeah, that's right. But don't you dare insinuate that someone might have a problem with race. I know y'all not like that, but that's how it is back in, in St. Louis. But what about you? Where are we seeking our justification? And what do we do with that? We keep going. Let's go to the second point. And the second question is... Who are our Samaritans? Who are our Samaritans? Now, that doesn't make sense yet, but it will at the end of the point. Now, I love the way that Jesus asked this question, or answers the question, rather. When you get to verse 30, Jesus doesn't get into a philosophical or a political or theological debate with the guy. He tells him a story. And it's taken right out of real life. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which in real life in Jesus' times was a dangerous road. They would call it the bloody way because there's lots of places for robbers to hide. Just what happens here in this next section of the verse. It says the man fell among robbers who stripped him and they beat him and they departed, leaving him half dead. So here we have a man traveling on the road and he's beaten, robbed, left for dead in the middle of the road. There's no hope unless someone else comes along with an act of radical grace. 
And then when we get to verse 30, it says, By chance a priest was going down that road, maybe leaving the temple or maybe on his way to the temple. And so there's a glimmer of hope that maybe this person is going to stop and help the man in the middle of the road. But that hope is quickly dashed away because it says when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now it doesn't tell us why he passed by. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he thought the robbers were still close by. Maybe he thought this was a trap. Maybe he was busy. Maybe he was in a hurry. Maybe he didn't want to become unclean. It doesn't say. But whatever the reason, he passes by on the other side. So then in the next verse, it says, So likewise, verse 32, a Levite, and that's someone who assists the priests in the temple. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Same thing. But then when we come to verse 33, this is the dramatic turn in the story. It says, but a Samaritan, a racial and religious outsider, he comes along, one you would not expect to help. But it says as he journeyed, he came to where he was and he had a different reaction. It says when he saw him, he had compassion. That means he's moved from the inside at the plight of this man laying in the middle of the road. And that compassion moves him to action. We see in the next verse, it says, He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. But his care doesn't stop there. It says, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And it doesn't stop there. It continues. Verse 35, The next day he took out two denarii, which is two days' wages, And he gave him to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And so this Samaritan gives all that he has to address the need of that man left for dead in the middle of the road. He shows us what radical love looks like. But you know what? Jesus is after a little bit more in this story. I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of the expert in the law. When Jesus is telling this story, and here's what we would have expected. When Jesus says a priest comes by and passes by, and then he says a Levite comes by and passes by, what we would be expecting next is for Jesus to say somebody like you, an Israelite layman, comes along, and you're the hero of the story. But that's not what he does, is it? Instead, Jesus says, a Samaritan, not only a person who's not considered a neighbor, but somebody who's considered an enemy. And Jesus makes him the hero of the story. Why? He's trying to expose what's in the heart of that expert in the law. And he does it by making the hated one the hero of the story. Now, I'm going to date myself a little bit in uh, this this TV show that I used to watch as a kid. It was called The Jeffersons. Has anybody heard of that? Anybody said it? Ask your parents, kids, if you don't know that show. Um, Well, the star of the show was George Jefferson, African-American dry cleaner who moved on up in New York City. And he's living in this luxurious apartment building and gets to know different neighbors and so on. Well, one particular episode, uh, there's a community group that's passing out flyers inviting people in the building to a community meeting. 
And it says, come to this meeting so you can find out how to make this building a much better place so we can get out the people that are causing trouble in our building. But what they didn't say is that it was really a meeting of the Ku Klux Klan in George's building. So George and his friends get the flyer and they go, oh, we should go to the meeting. And so the meeting starts and it begins and the man is up at the front giving his rhetoric and George is a little bit late, but then he walks in and picture him coming into the Klan meeting and he sits right in the very front row. And the Klan leader is looking as an assistant and looks at George. He's like, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm with you. Go ahead. Keep going. And so the man says, we're trying to get the riffraff out of this building. George says, amen. And then the man looks at George and he says, we're talking about you. And then they realize where they are. And if you watch the show, George is a hot-headed guy. And so he jumps up and he's ready to fight with the guy. And they're arguing back and forth. And then all of a sudden the clan leader starts to get faint and wobbly and grabs his arm and he, he collapses. They're on the stage. And his son runs over to him and says, says, he's got a bad heart. He needs somebody to come and administer CPR if they're going to save him. Is there anybody here that knows CPR? Everybody's quiet. And then there's one hand that goes up. Guess whose it is? George's. And George gets down and administers mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and saves the life of the clan leader. And the way that episode ends is the ambulance comes and they're wheeling him out on the cart and he becomes conscious again. And he asks his son what happened and his son tells him and then he points over to George and he says, this man saved your life. And he can't believe it. He says, him? He saved my life? You should have let me die. And then they wheel him out. And the clan leader's assistant stays there and tries to continue the meeting. But what happens is everybody takes the flyers and takes them and walks out of the room, including the clan leader's own son. Why? Because they'd been exposed. How? By the hated one being the hero. And that's exactly what Jesus does in this story. And so now we come to our question. Hopefully it makes sense now. Who are our Samaritans? Who is it for us that if Jesus is telling us that story, we say, oh no, Jesus, not them. They could never be the hero of the story. Is it a person of another race? Or that lives in a different place? Person of a different generation? Person of a different gender? A person of a different denomination? A person of a different political party than you. Who is it for you? Who are your Samaritans? Bring those to Jesus. Because we might look at this and we say, man, that expert in the law is in a terrible place, isn't he? He's in the best place. Because he's in the hands of the great physician. And so are we. And so we can bring those things before Him so that He might change us. I love the prayer of David. 
at the end of Psalm 139, which is this psalm that talks about the intimate knowledge of God that God has of us at the very end. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let that be our prayer too. That He might show us what needs to change. Because He's the one with the heart and power to be able to change it. So bring your Samaritans to Him. Lastly, last question, what will it look like for us to go and do likewise? That's the challenge that Jesus gives this man at the end of the parable. What will that mean for us? Let's come to verse 36 after the story's over. Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Did you catch what Jesus did here? He changed the question. Do you remember verse 29? What did the expert in the law ask Jesus? Who is my neighbor? But Jesus here says, which one proved to be a neighbor? He changes neighbor from a noun to a verb. And says, you are asking the wrong question. Question is not who do I have to love and who do I not have to love. The question is how do I be a neighbor to those around me, image bearers of God, whoever they are. Well, how did the the Samaritan love? How did he go and do likewise? Well, excuse me, I'm ahead of myself. Let's go to verse 36. The man in verse 37, rather, he answered, but you notice he doesn't even say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. He got the point. And then Jesus says, you go and you do likewise. So what would that look like? What did the Samaritan do? Well, at least two things. One, his heart went out to the man and his plight in the middle of the road. His heart went out to the man and that's what moved him to action. Many of you are familiar with Martin Luther King's last sermon. A lot of people... Call it, I've been to the mountaintop, because that's how it ends. Well, right towards the the end of the sermon, maybe 15 minutes before it's over, there's a part where he refers to this parable. Powerful illustration that he makes using this parable. And what he says, he says, the priest and the Levite saw the man there, and they said to themselves, if we stop to help this man, what's going to happen to us? But he said the Samaritan reversed the question. And he said, if I do not stop to help this man, what's going to happen to him? And then Dr. King challenged the audience. He was in Memphis, Tennessee, in support of sanitation workers. And he said to the audience, the question for us is not if we stop to help the sanitation workers, what's going to happen to us? The question is, if we do not stop to help them, what's going to happen to them? So what will it look like for us here to reverse the question? with the people around us who are in need. The question for us is not if we stop to help orphans and widows, the poor in our midst, those struggling with disabilities, whatever it might be, if we stop to help those that society puts on the bottom, what's going to happen to me? That's the wrong question. The question is if we do not stop, what's going to happen to them? So our hearts need to go out to them. But secondly, here... With the Samaritan, not only did his heart go out to them, but also his hands went to work. His compassion 
moved him to action. Now, did he solve all the problems of the Jericho Road at the time? No. But he met that need that was in front of him. And he used everything that he had to his disposal, at his disposal, to be able to address that need. And so what does that say to us? It calls us first to look outward and say, what are the needs in the places around us? What are the needs of the people around us? Whether that be our physical neighbors in Annapolis, the neighbors where we live, the people in our workplace, whoever it is. What are the needs around us? Whether they be spiritual, physical, emotional, psychological, what are they? But then not only do we look outward, we also look inward. We say, what has God given us? What has God given me that I might use and bring to bear on the needs around me? What would that look like practically? Maybe it means joining together with other churches that are at work. Maybe it means continuing in the ministries you've already talked about in the service, stepping into the gap where Bill is gone. What will it mean for you to go and do likewise? And maybe you're here and you're saying, you know what, I've been trying to go and do likewise and I'm tired. And it's not worked out well. And I've been misunderstood and I've been used and I've been all these things. How am I supposed to find the power to keep on doing this? Where do I find the power to get strength when I'm weary? To find hope when I'm disillusioned? To find endurance when I'm tired and I don't want to go on anymore? We find it. By looking continually to the one true good Samaritan. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Let him continually remind us where we should see ourselves in this story. Not as the hero who comes along to save the day. But as the one who's left for dead in the middle of the road. And our plight was worse than his. Because we weren't just half dead, we were all the way dead and our transgressions and sins before the one true Good Samaritan stopped to help us. Brothers and sisters, our hope is found in the one who didn't just have his heart broken for us, who had his body broken for us. Our hope is in the one who didn't just have his oil poured out for us, but his own precious blood poured out for us. Our hope is in the one who didn't just come at the risk of his life, but who came at the cost of his life. I'm so thankful today that our Lord Jesus reversed the question for us. He looked at us in our plight. And He didn't say, if I give my life for them, what's going to happen to me? He said, if I don't give my life for them, what's going to happen to them? Knowing full well what would happen to Him. And He took it, bearing our sin whether sins of omission or commission, sins of racism, sexism, any other ism, individual, systemic, whatever they are, taking them upon himself on a Roman cross. Why? For the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning his shame. And now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, where guess what? He lives to intercede for us even now that we might be a people, brothers and sisters in Christ, people of every tribe and language and nation, that we might be a people that walk in line with the truth of the gospel, 
for such a time as this. To God be praised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our one true good Samaritan. We thank you, Lord, that not only did his heart break for us, but his body broke for us. His blood was poured out to purchase us. People from every tribe and language and nation that we might be a part of the family of God. So, Lord, we pray that you might empower us that we might walk in line with the truth of the gospel, whether here in Annapolis, whether in St. Louis or everywhere else. We pray you would do that for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.